And the deal we made was basically any of Angela's subscribers, if she has paid subscribers, they can get into our reader's portal and see the online versions of Dreamforge for free. And the Dreamforge people, any of our paid subscribers, they have the ability to see you know, space and time. So um, it basically just adds value to, to both sides to um, kind of allow their, their audiences uh, into to see the other magazine. Um, so that was our first cooperative venture. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's we're super cooperative, uh, complementary. That's the word I'm looking for. We cooperate all the time, but we're very complementary because uh, even like the worlds of light and darkness reflected in the title is we tend to go for more of the darker uh, fiction and poetry, and you guys do the hope punk or wait, solar punk, right? Solar punk, hope punk, just yeah, 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 kind of the lighter, and both are so important. You can't have, you know, you can't always be reading dark fiction or light fiction. It's good to have that balance. And I think that's one reason why we always love working with you guys is because you do balance us out. And that cooperation, to get back to Sherry's original question, that cooperation is what evolved into worlds, the anthology Worlds of Light and Darkness. Mm -hmm. um, one of the other contacts that, that we have um, is Rick Lewis, and he's the uh, publisher, uh, owner of Uproar Books. And we've just been, you know, we again these things evolve a little bit over time. But we were we were talking to Rick, and there was a day where he came to us and he said, "Would you consider, you know, us doing an anthology of stories?" And I see that you cooperate and you know work very well with space and time. Do you think you guys would like to do like a joint anthology where we would have you pick the best stories from from both your magazines, and and we could do an anthology on that? So really, it comes down to you know three small publishers. Um, you know, coming together to, uh, mm -hmm. to to put together a really nice um, anthology, which which you know we're absolutely delighted. Again, it came out May 25th, and we're absolutely delighted with the reviews we've gotten. We've gotten positive reviews from Publishers Weekly and from uh, Booklist, which is the American Library Association, and 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 actually that's that's one of my favorites because there's a line in uh, Booklist that. Uh, it says the combining of stories that have been printed by these two publications is genius. So, oh thank, yeah, thank, yeah. Thank, thank you, co-genius Angela. Right. Well, thank you, co-genius Scott. <laughs> um, I, since Angela hasn't been on the show before, uh, what is your background? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, been writing forever in a non-professional, but my professional writing career started with newspapers, actually, way back, way back when you actually had to have film in your camera. I don't want to date myself, but it, it was quite a while ago, and I started with newspapers, and I did primarily nonfiction for years. I mean, well, 20, 20 plus years, probably. And then it was my non-fiction career started um, in 2011, I actually just celebrated my 10-year anniversary with independent publishing and uh, at the end of May. And the first book was called End of May because, you know, that's why I picked End of May as that publishing date. Um, but that started as an argument um, with somebody at a convention. He very loudly said, I'm the nicest person. Don't Please don't think me an argument <laughs> banshee. But in this conversation, I was. I do have my buttons. And he had loudly said that nonfiction people can't write fiction. They just can't because they have no imagination. And then I said, well, no, I, I think that you have to have imagination writing nonfiction, especially lately, but because you have to 
see the interesting angle of the story. You really have to be able to take the facts and angle them around so the light catches them just right, and, and it makes an attractive story. And that resulted in this argument where we almost got kicked out of the writer's convention um, because we were yelling at each other. And, I mean, I just remember my face flushed and, like, veins pulping, and he, and he was angry. I've never done that before, and I've never done that since. I don't know what it was. Too much caffeine for both of us, probably. But I would have been right there beside you, Angela. I would have, yeah. I, you, you would have had to hold me back from slapping the guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I even was telling him, I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying, yes, you do have to. Yeah, so anyways, I won't recap the argument. But yeah. that night oh, I and, went home and started the book. And my, my reaction from that would be, I am not only a fiction writer, but also a nonfiction writer. So yeah. I've made my career and living doing both of those, so um, I would hope that there's imagination in both. Exactly, yeah, and that's, writing is a craft no matter what genre, you know, that's like saying romance is better than horror. I read horror. I don't ever read romance hardly, but it doesn't make one better than the other, so that's how I got started writing fiction was that argument, you know, kind of the whole, I'll show you, and then I guess he really won because then I fell in love with fiction and wound up retiring from the newspaper business and uh, while I still do do nonfiction, you know, here and there, like we just came out with a, a, a co co-written book uh, that's a, how to keep your manuscripts out of the slush pile. But uh, I primarily just write fiction now. So, and then yes, space and time. I think I started down a rabbit trail there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hopefully that gave you the background. No, that, that, that makes sense. I, it, it is weird that people have these strange concepts that, uh, if you if you read this then you can't read that or I am I read mm -hmm. so many different kinds of genres uh, and and I read a lot of nonfiction I don't ever I, I don't want to be trapped in a little box anybody who does put me tries to put me in a box would have the same reaction you had <laughs> well that's all that's all interesting it actually relates to something just just today because I've been uh, one of the things we do at Dreamforge is when, when we have the opportunity, we'll work with some beginning writers and, and try to help them out. And, and we have some different ways we do that, picking people from the submission pile and, and seeing if they want some help. But uh, a writer that, that I've been working with uh, basically said, hey, I just published a story. You know, I just, just got a story published. It's going to be on, on such and such a, a website. And, and I said, congratulations, that's absolutely great. And he wanted to say, but I don't know if you'll want to read it because it has some grim stuff in it. And, and, and I had to explain that basic idea. It's like, I read everything. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like Dreamforge specifically, you know, has a mission and it's focused on hopeful things that the human adventure is just beginning. You know, that's our theme and that's, that's the, what we want to portray in our stories. But, but me as a reader, um, you know, I read Stephen King. I read, um, uh, you know, I read uh, Evangeline. You know, mm -hmm. you know poetry from from the from the 18th century there, and and uh, you know, very eclectic reader. So people do tend to think that that the one thing you're doing might be the only thing that that you do, and yeah, and, and that's not true. People people have wide ranges. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I told somebody the other day. They said, "What is one of the most important books to you of all time?" And I said, "It would be the Little House in the Prairie theory." I read those so many times, it's crazy, on repeat. I would end the stories and start back at the beginning. And they were shocked because they were like, really, I didn't picture you as kind of that type of reader. 
And those were like my, those books raised me, you know, and they were super important for me to know what a family was supposed to, like that was my, you know, and that's why I read them so much. And they are like kind of my safe, if I ever got upset now, I'd probably go back and read them. Like if I was depressed or something, I would probably pick up uh, those books. There were two book series like that for me when I was a, a kid, um, when I graduated to actually reading real books. One was, yeah. and this is going to sound really hokey, one was Heidi and the other was Little Women. But the reason why uh, is not all... Heidi was very adventurous. She did what she wanted to do. Uh-huh. She went against the core. And Joe was a woman right after my heart. She wanted to be a writer, and she wanted to be independent. She didn't want to mm-hmm. be... I mean, it, it, I, I was a feminist before I was a feminist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I love both of those books. Little Women is also one of my chicken soup books, where if I just need some kind of, you know, spiritual buoyancy, I'll read that book. Yeah, and it's fun to read all of them because you get a different perspective mm-hmm. than only the first one, which most people only read the first one. Well, and I think yeah, I, part of part of what we're talking about here is just that we both, Angela and I, have, have very eclectic reading habits, and that probably reflects on how we do our jobs mm-hmm. and store the stories we select for, for our magazines so that, you know, you're not, if you pick up space and time, you're, you're, you're not just going to get some horror template where every mm-hmm. story is the same. Um, there, there's a lot there with different tones and different approaches, and um, you know the the same for Dreamforge, and I think that's probably why Worlds of Light and Darkness, the anthology, is 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 resonating so well with people. Is just that idea that you're going to go in here and you're going to find essentially you're going to find tearjerkers, you know, you're going to mm-hmm. find you're going to find things that are that are really hopeful and uplifting. You're going to find things that that are a bit scary and, and have a, a skewed perspective of things and. And, and, you know, that, that kind of just uh, selection, I think, really helps. Yeah, and I don't think any of the stories, it's that variety, that great eclectic variety, like you're talking about, none of the stories can I say, oh, that's like, they're all very individual stories with really distinct author voices, which I think is also part of it. Well, I also think that yeah. if you read a lot of different kind of books, your focus isn't narrow, and therefore your uh, selection isn't narrow. That's it. Uh, it's very simple. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to get stuck in the same genre forever? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, you, you just because you are, I think people who read different types of books have a wider range of interests in life, uh, mm-hmm. and if you don't have wider interests in life, yet you will, because you're writing, reading all the different kinds of books. Mm. Absolutely. I think that's one of the things that's good about reading an anthology like yours is because you're going to get different uh, writers' points. I like reading short stories because you get different writers' point of view, uh, especially with an anthology series. Um, mm-hmm. And I and that may spur you. I I mean I remember when I was a little girl, my dad got me. I can't remember what anthology it was, but it had A. Van Vogt and Ray Bradbury and all this. It made me want to read the full novels because I was reading all these different mm-hmm. books. Um, it's it's very important that you guys do it like that. I think and I and I love the focus that it's on 
sort of like a Gene Roddenberry focus that, you know, the future isn't dead and that there is something that's to look forward to in life. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's my whole thing with, with Dreamforge is, and as you know, we've talked about this on the, the show before, but but a lot of what goes on in science fiction today, they the there's this feeling that it's more serious if you talk apocalyptically. You know, if the world's coming to an end and, and you know, everyone is evil and, and whatever, that's more realistic and serious about the way society is. And, and you know, I realize that there are problems in society and that there are problems, you know, w- with uh, the world. You can always say the world has always been broken. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's our job to basically look beyond that and see, you know, what we can do moving forward. And I very much agree with the Gene Roddenberry sentiment that uh, the human adventure is just beginning. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, tr- I try to spend a lot of time reading beyond the climate disaster and reading beyond technology is going to destroy us all and, and trying to understand what's, what's really happening. Uh, and that takes some perspective. That takes some pullback and some, some looking at things. But, um, you know, just in the last 100, 150 years or so, the entire literacy versus illiteracy thing has flipped. Um, you know, if you go back to like the 19th century or so, that there were like 12, 13 percent of the world was was literate. Now it's the opposite. It's like 90 mm-hmm. percent you know, of the world that's literate, and 12 or so that, that are still illiterate. Um, extreme poverty, where you basically have people, you know, starving to death in the world. That's that's been reducing dramatically uh, over time. So mm-hmm. you know, the, the progress is there. It just it just takes looking for, it. and it doesn't mean that that it's all happiness and rainbows and and light. You know, you you still obviously have lots of injustice and and you still have wealth inequality and all that. But but if you look at it as a whole, uh, I think things are definitely moving in in an interesting and in, in direction. I think uh-huh. that something's really important to look at too is that you know just because things are bad doesn't mean that everything is bad. Um, you you have to. You, you have to know about what's going on in the world, but you also need to focus on, in order to survive, to focus on what's good. And, and I mean, if you think about the time period that Star Trek was done, it was one of the most horrible times in the world. Um, you know, uh, it, it's sort of like starting all over again right now. It's exactly what was happening in the 60s. So it's a good timing for you guys to have this book. documentary about Gutenberg and the printing press and why 
the printing press changed the world is that it was books were made of um, animal skin, sorry, I don't like it either. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very expensive <laughs> to get a book because it was made from these poor animals and they only used certain types of animals and it was awful. Anyway, um, Gutenberg figured out about paper from um, some friends of his that were in, um, I think it was in Jordan, or it was an Arab community. And uh, they showed him how to do it, and he started using that. And that opened the world. I mean, really, the books became uh -huh. available for everybody. And that's what the Internet is now. Mm -hmm. it, it's paper. You know, it's it, the paper that was... I find super interesting that about that. Like, going back to that, I just read this. I think I brought this up to you too, Scott, because I was so amazed. Um Back when books were first being published, people were warning young people against them. Like, don't waste all your time reading these books. Literacy, it actually is like literacy is is in, indolent. It's, it's, it's a waste of time. You should be doing healthy things like, I guess, having picnics out in the sun or something. And now that is completely the opposite of what we think. But... We tend to say that now about social media. Like, don't waste your time on social media and games, kids. Go do something, you know, edifying, like read a book. But, you know, 100 years ago, reading a book was not a good right. thing to do for young. You know? Because one of the things it was doing, it was disrupting uh, memory techniques. It's like people, you know, before mm -hmm. people had easy access to printed material, they had to remember things. A, a lot better, just in terms of regular business things, and and you know, um, you know, they you know, you think about, for instance, even something like the Bible, going back in history, that people always had access to this, and it's like, well, no, there might be one in the church, and it might yeah. be in Latin, <laughs> and, yeah. and if you if you know something about the Bible, it's because you you memorized it, or you know, you you were mm -hmm. taught it, and you committed it to memory, and and that was one of the objections to books. It's like, oh my God, like. You know, you're going to lose all the ability to to basically know things. You just you're just you know referencing this easy book, and you know. And now what we do is we just go to Google, and it's like mm -hmm. you know, it's like okay, well, how does that work? And yeah. any any time there's a disruptive technology or disruptive change in culture like that, I think it's it's probably easier for people to see the bad things that are happening uh, because that's just the way our brains are built, and mm -hmm. it's it's much harder to see what effect that's going to have. 100 years later or 50 years later or how that's actually going to, you know, develop into something that, that's used. And, mm -hmm. and we're, we're just, you know, stuck putting up with the, uh, with the initial pain points of, you know, everybody screaming at one another and, and you know, trolling and hacking and, and, <laughs> and, and, and all those, those bad things. It's like, yes, those are painful and those are problems, but those don't really inform us about how this technology, which wasn't around when, you know, I, I'm 64, I don't consider myself that old, but when I was a young person, this didn't exist. Yeah. I, was actually, okay. I was actually in the computer game industry as a project manager of computer game development before there was an internet, <laughs> you know? And then my wife and I had our own business before there was Google. So these things, have, these things have not been around for generations to figure out how to use them well and what effect they will mm -hmm. actually have. These things have been around for like decades. Which, yeah. which which is amazing. It's like the development 
that has happened in decades, it, 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 it would be mind-boggling and impossible to understand what's going on at the moment. I think it's very yeah. interesting, a point you brought up about how, uh, about when books came out, people were trying to stop people. There was another part of that. There was, like, leaders that, uh, a lot of people weren't literate, so they would had murals and paintings and uh, statues, and they talked from the pulpit, and that's all they had. And now books were coming out and was opening stuff up and thoughts. I mean, the first book was the Gideon Bible, but beyond that, when they started publishing and uh, all these different thought systems and they uh, they started getting philosophies from other countries and poetry and and the populace was harder to control because of that. Uh-huh. And that was another reason they were trying to get people not to read and not to become literate. That's not good for you. I mean, even Jane Austen made fun of that kind of thing when she was right, and that was the 1800s, but um, 17 and 1800s. But she, when she wrote Northanger Abbey, she was a young girl just first starting to figure out whether she wants to be a writer and what does a novel do to a young girl and is there such thing as reading too many novels? I mean, you know, uh-huh. you think about it. That's what the book's about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that we still have that attitude in some ways for, like, different genres, like, you know, reading romance. Ugh, why don't you read something, you know, that will educate real. you. I mean, I've heard that comment. That will educate you. I mean, really, mm-hmm. there's nothing in romance. <laughs> yeah, and even science fiction, horror, and fantasy. And mystery. Uh, you know, genre fiction has such a bad name up until, I, w- I want to say, like, the last, 10 years maybe, maybe 20, but genre fiction was considered trash, like, you know, all the greats, just garbage, that's just genre fiction, and now everybody's suddenly holding them up, you know, as being awesome, and oh, genre fiction, well, that's quite classy. Well, I would would argue that um, uh, genre fiction, or speculative fiction anyway, in a broad sense, has been what fiction has always been. Been, mm-hmm. It is you know, from from the beginning of time, and yeah. and realistic fiction is actually a more modern invention of mm-hmm. you know the the 19th 20th century kind of thing where they started this we're going to do realistic fiction and and get a real realistic view of life. But you know if you go back, you know just you know one of my favorite books is Don Quixote, and it's like oh, yeah. well that's not realistic fiction. I I think yeah. it's the Saturday Night Live of the 15th century or whatever. Yeah, you know it's like, it's. It's it's just it's hysterical once you understand kind of what's going on, but it's but it's it's also very speculative and fun and and you've mm-hmm. got you know in that book you've got you know um, uh, Don Quixote you know meeting the author of Don Quixote or meeting the author of the fake Don Quixote and it's like yeah, they're yeah. talking about these these <laughs> these books that are in the world and it's like oh well this guy's written this book about me but this guy this guy's the guy who's basically just ripping off me you know mm-hmm. sort of thing. And, and yeah, he uh, has so much fun with that. Yeah, and and uh, you know, so so speculative fiction, I think, has 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 broadly been what humanity has has dealt with, and it's it's just a uh, in the last couple hundred years or so, there's been this interesting little twist, and in where where realistic fiction has been the serious fiction. Mm-hmm. 
and and also I think there's there's a real sense that that um, uh, dark fiction. I don't mean like horror, but I mean like like grim reality fiction as far as 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 showing how bad you know life can actually be and how oppressed people can be that and with tragic endings that that's somehow the serious fiction mm-hmm. and and I think that's that's a false image as well um, you know I, I, because oftentimes I think it's easier it's actually easier to write something where everybody dies than, yeah. than it is to find how you solve the problem and how you move forward and save the community, that's the hard part. It's like, yeah, of course everybody can die if nobody does anything. It's interesting you say that because my favorite book is uh, Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, and for a long time that was written off as a light book. You know, know, the Roaring Twenties and Flappers and uh, Unrequited Love. But if you look at the book, there's all kinds of really dark aspects to it. It is real. There's so many mm-hmm. layers that he. I mean, it took him four years. To, was it four or five years to write it? There's he. He didn't. It, it, there's not just one level. There's a level for everybody in it. But it is a really complex book. But for years they wouldn't even have it in colleges because it's so light. You know. Interesting. It, it's it's just it, it, people have these weird. It's our murder mysteries, which is a, one of the first genres that broke through the, um, you know, that a jo- uh, genre is a nothing book and blah blah blah. Um, Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, they're the first, and, and uh-huh. that they were written by women, really annoyed. Yeah, they, those the were men. for bored housewives to entertain them. Yeah, you know, they go were, do some cleaning, woman. <laughs> yeah, and it's really funny because. Uh, you know, Akaza was not just writing her books, she was also doing archaeology with her husband, doing the photographing and all that. Um, and, well, her second husband. And uh, Dorothy Sayers wasn't just writing her books, she was a, a, a Oxford graduate who was teaching, and she was also an advertising person, and she was doing. Uh, all, uh, what was the? Um, she was a researcher for Christian stuff and and all kinds of stuff. I mean, these were very complex women that you cannot put them in again any kind of little square. But they, of course, because they write mysteries. Oh, they write schlock. But if you read her mysteries or any of Agatha's other books, you see her books are structured incredibly well. It it, it just annoys me that they say things like that. Oh, it's just a woman's book. No, it's not. <laughs> no, no more than The Great Gatsby is a light book. I mean, both of those yeah. points of view just are ridiculous, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's Frankenstein was, uh, he published it un- with no name, mm-hmm. originally, because it was thought of as nobody's going to buy this. Because it's by a woman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then someone said that her husband wrote it, and she didn't, which uh, which he stood up for, which I actually have a lot of respect for. Uh, her husband did not, because some husbands that were uh, husbands of famous authors trying to claim that they wrote the book, he didn't. He stood up for his wife at, at the time she was his girlfriend when mm-hmm. he wrote when she wrote it, but. Uh, Shelley stood up for her and said, "No, she wrote it." She go, he goes, "I edited it, but it was her idea, uh-huh. her concept. It took her a long time to do it. I can testify. This woman wrote this book. How many men back then would do that?" 
Absolutely. And, and that cultural change is, is, you know, we're not that far away from attitudes like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even back in, in the 60s, well, first of all, if you watch the TV show Mad Men, uh, about the advertising uh, business in in the '60s, you you get to see some of that realistic the way women were were treated then, which was very dismissive and uh, no sense of of helping someone along in their career and and or even giving them credit for you know the things that they were contributing to a business. It was basically a man's world. And again, we're we're looking at that just from the '60s, mm-hmm. you know, to now. What an what an enormous cultural change has happened in in that respect. Um, where you know, uh, you know, I've I've heard like that story from my sisters, my you know, my aunts growing up is just how women were treated, and and you, it, it's hard to say that things haven't Im- improved at this point. Mm-hmm. It's funny because you know, if you think about it, Mad Men to me is sort of like a dark bewitch because it's the same basic thing, it's just the darker side of it. Um, <laughs> but but. The thing that's really interesting about it during the 60s, women were not allowed to have credit cards in their name. They were not allowed to take out a business loan. They were not allowed to um, do, I mean, they had some freedom. They could get a job. They could drive a car. They could do stuff. But a lot of the things that would help them to create their own life, some women in some parts of the U.S. couldn't even get a bank account with their own name on it. In, uh, I, I, I read that, um, I can't remember who it was, but uh, an author's husband had to create a bank account for her. It was, he didn't touch the money. All the money went to her. But he had to open up the account because the bank wouldn't open it up for her. And That's that funny. was in the 60s. Yep, and, and I don't want to leave the impression that I think, oh, we're fine now, everybody's no. fine, and, and we're all hunky-dory and dandy, but um, I think there's still a, lo- a long ways to go. I think that there are still inequities, and, um, you know, that, that definitely need to need to be addressed. It's just you, you have to see that there has been progress, and that there can be. Oh, future. yeah. I'd well, like to and, see and the ERA pass. i like to see the ERA pass. You know, it's, it was a simple document. It just says women and men should be treated equally. That's it. So the thing that I, um, I guess my, that's, that's the horror writer in me is we always write the cautionary tale, which I think is kind of the point of horror a lot of times is, but look at this, this could happen. Like we have to be warned so we don't fall prey to this situation. And the, the cautionary thing for me is I don't want to see us go too far the other way because a lot of times a group that's discriminated against seems like the pendulum turns too much and then another group is discriminated against. That's true. Because we're overcompensating. So, like, we started a publishing company, and it is to uh, raise up specifically. It started in the name of my grandmother, who was Okinawan. So we will, we plan to publish a lot of Okinawa, not specifically Okinawa, but Asian books. So we want to amplify the Asian voice. But we're not excluding any. It's not for Asian writers because then that's just the same thing, and we're being exclusionary. So, and I just just amplify the quiet voices, you know, without excluding anybody is what I, I kind of hope we can evolve to. I just think I agree. that I, it's sad. I've often had the, oh, sorry, go ahead, Sherry. No, I, I just thinking it's sad that people just can't let, we're all one planet. 
whatever exactly. whatever you are, whatever sex you are, whatever your sexual uh, desires are, whatever your nationality is, it doesn't matter. We don't have any yeah. place to go yet. This is it. We're here. So let's get along with yep. each other and support each other and stop acting like children in the sandbox fighting over a toy. Well, I can hardly wait till the aliens come and the aliens have to unite. <laughs> well, one, one of the things to keep in mind is that we are all human, and when you talk about you know various genders and transgenders and and um, you know LGBTQ plus and and um, you know just black versus white, Asian, you know the whole thing, all of us are human, mm -hmm. and that means both good things and bad things. For one thing, it means that you know Angela had referenced the idea of the pendulum swinging. Well, when that pendulum swings in the in the direction of empowering a particular group, you can count on some people in that group basically saying, aha, now I have the power, <laughs> and, now oh, I'm going sure. to, and now I'm going to get at the people that I don't like. You know, I'm going to really? go after them with cancel culture, or I'm going to go after them with whatever, because now I have, you know, my buds behind me, and we have power. And mm -hmm. that is a danger just because we're all human, and and we all react like that. And given the opportunity, one of my favorite lines from the original Star Trek was, you know, it, it was uh, Bones basically reiterating the idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we're we're all prey to that. And and if we we are going to essentially, you know, uh, work together well and and empathetically and that sort of thing, we all have to be aware that no matter who we are, we have that tendency. That okay, if I have the power now, I'm I'm you know gonna get I'm gonna get mine and you know get suppress the people that I don't like. So. Wasn't that in Patterns of Force when the old professor of Kirk's uh, was trying to bring the country together and they all uh, he was using a little bit and then somebody uh, drugged him and then it became a Nazi culture. Yes, I, I, I'm not sure if that was the episode, but it may well have been. Um, in in my youth, I had all 79 original episodes memorized. <laughs> I have I the weirdest... I'm not so good at it now. <laughs> I can pluck. I, I cannot remember something that I have on the tip of the tongue. Like, um, I, I, I was trying to remember uh, a site. I'm a, I, I studied archaeology. I have a degree. I mean, I should be able to do it, and I couldn't think of it, and my brother was laughing at me because he knew I knew it. It was all the way in the back of my mind. It wouldn't come out of my tongue. But I can remember every TV show I liked that I ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It's like uh, I said, do I have a form of Alzheimer's? He goes, no, you've always had that weird thing about remembering books and TV <laughs> shows and movies that you saw. That's just you. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I it's just it's just this weird. I will be interviewing somebody, and um, a book or a movie I can't think of would be uh they they were talking about it and they couldn't remember it and I couldn't remember it and it just it was there. I could feel it. I knew it. I could see it in my mind's eye, and I couldn't remember the name. I mean, that's the part that makes me crazy about getting older. Well, I think there's the brain fog going on, too, with, like, COVID and stuff. I, whether or not we've all had COVID, I know many, many people are like, oh, I, I'm sure I had it. But I will say there's been some really weird weeks over the past, what, year and a half now? Mm -hmm. Where just one week, like, not sick, 
nobody is sick, but man cannot remember anything. The simplest things like how to send an email have, you know, got confusing that week or whatever. And I think uh, I'm hearing that over and over from people is we've had that brain fog, you know, here and there. And and I attribute it to possibly that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I have heard. Unfortunately, I, I can't come out with the answer because I just heard in passing there was a headline in the last day or so that, that researchers were close to understanding um, what the brain fog associated with COVID was and, and how that was operating. So I should look that up now. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm curious. I just because I know really we definitely weird. experienced it. I just thought it was old because I was old. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm gonna go with brain fog because that sounds like way better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's like this, I mean I can remember the names of characters in Mash, but I can't remember stuff that I learned and know, and it's there somewhere from school. I. Isn't oh, that weird? <laughs> I think it's compartmentalizing the the knowledge that you react with. You know, like that you remember a bad review thing over the you get 100 good reviews, you can't really pinpoint anything, but you'll remember almost word for word that one bad review. Yeah. I think it's probably that, because I, I don't remember movies or because I don't watch TV and I'm, I'm not a visual uh, story watcher, I guess. And uh, so I can watch a whole movie and then afterwards really be vague on the details. You know, unless I've seen it a lot, like Princess Bride. Um, but, yeah, I'm pretty bad with that. But I can tell you almost quotes, like different books I've read or news articles, you know, and statistics and things like that. So but that's probably what interests me. You know, in the movie, I'm probably honestly dozing. It's interesting. Well, I think it, it might also have to do with how you process things. Uh, like my, my wife is an artist, a graphic layout artist, and she processes things visually. I process things through words, and specifically like words on, on the page. It's how I see the world. And, and that has often been brought up to me in my life. But most recently we had a webinar with Elizabeth Leggett, who's a Hugo Award-winning uh, illustrator and who works for Dreamforge. And... In during that, we had her images, that she, even ones she'd done for us on screen, and she then started to describe what she went through to do that. And as she did it, I saw things in those images that I never saw before. Um, you know, it's just things that actually were visually there, and I had never processed them until it was pointed out. Until it was pointed out, well, here's here's how I you know use this triangle you know, of images to, to do this, or here's where I put, you know, one of one of my favorite ones, and then here's where I put the little dandelion, and it's like, oh, my God, there's a dandelion in there. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so, yeah, so I think people do, based on, on how their brain works and, and what they've come, they, they process the world differently. And mm -hmm. some people simply might not be able to process, you know, written content um, as well as I do, and, and I certainly can't process visual content as well as other people do. It's weird because I'm a visual person, but I am also a writer. Not weird. I mean, I when I'm writing, yeah, I can I see think the concepts go together. Well, I see it. On the other hand, I'm not allowed to pick a color for anything. Oh, you're bad. <laughs> I, and I will say, there's a reason why I wear only black because I can guarantee it matches, and I don't have to think about it. <laughs> No, I'm good at that. I'm good at color coordination. That's one thing I'm good at. No, I'm really good at, I, I, well, I love, I'm, I can't do art. I'm not an artist 
of that type. But I love art. I adore it. I mean, one of my favorite things before COVID was to go to the museums and look at the uh, the latest paintings that they just switched out at the art museum here in San Diego. I I love art, but I'm not an artist. <laughs> yeah. But, oh, by the way, the word I couldn't think of, um, I just wanted to say it clearly, was Pompeii. That was what I couldn't think of last night when I was talking to my brother. And I was so angry at myself. And I was going, I was going, he, he, he was within the triumphant. He was with, he, he was uh, against Caesar. They fought each other. He was killed in Egypt by Ptolemy. I mean, I was telling Dave, my brother, the whole bloody history, and I couldn't think of his name. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That, that indeed was Pompeii. Yes. yes, it was Pompeii, I know. And I was like, I was so angry that I couldn't remember the name. But anyway, that was what <laughs> froze out of my mind. And it's weird, because I remember the entire, his history, and the entire archaeology of the site of Pompeii, but I couldn't think of the name. Just wanted to make that clear. I know what it is. <laughs> I do know these things. I just couldn't think of it at the moment. Yes. Anyway, um, okay, we're coming to the end. Um, how can uh, anybody get your, your anthology? And uh, uh, can they get it autographed? Ooh, that would be a special request, but we would we, we could uh, consider that. Um, one, how can they get the anthology? Well, it's Worlds of Light and Darkness, edited by Angelie Rico Smith and Scott Knoll, and they can get it on Amazon, which, by the way, I saw the print version. Amazon says only seven left, more on the way. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so, so that's cool. Um, uh, but they can order it you know, from Amazon, and I would imagine if someone you know, uh, contacts us through our websites and wants an autograph, they could, they could send it our way, and, and we could autograph it and send it back. They, they would probably have to pay for shipping and handling or postage anyway. Um, but, yeah, that, that could be something that could happen. Um, it's 20 short stories uh, from uh, Dreamforge and Space and Time. Uh, it's getting fabulous reviews. Um, and uh, we hope that people will enjoy it and that it will also lead more subscribers back to our original magazines because we're still doing this work. And, by the way, the, the anthology is marked, is, the publisher said this is the best of Dreamforge and Space and Time Volume 1 uh, because the publisher has hopes that there will be a Volume 2. <laughs> I saw that, actually, and I was, I was wondering about that because I would be up for that. This has been a lot of fun, and I think it's been super awesome to, uh, amp like, expose some of the newer writers. There was a good mix between experienced writers and new voices in both our stories. And just the personal stories that have happened out of it, like I know Austin Gregg with Collecting Violet um, has just gotten so much success. And it's hard as a newer writer to get that voice out there and get it noticed. So I think I'm, I'm all for doing a second one um, for that alone, if that's all we ever wind up doing with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we'll we'll be we'll be glad to be there and and help. And how you get anyone out there can learn about these things. It's like um, you know, our website is dreamforgemagazine.com and Angela faceandtime.net. Okay. Uh, and come what, to our website to learn more about us. And what is your social media, please? 
Um, well, uh, that's a good question. I'm never prepared <laughs> for that. Uh, we are on Facebook. Dreamforge is on Facebook, which is facebook.com, dreamforgemagazine.com. And I am on Twitter, uh, which is probably at Dreamforge something. At Dreamforge Mag, at Dreamforge Mag, M A G. There you go. That's my that's my Twitter. And Angela, how about you? Uh, wait, well, I was going to say I'm going to be. Scott, Facebook. you're on Instagram. Am I on Instagram? That's my wife who's on Instagram, and I. I <laughs> but you're still on, I'm Instagram. on Instagram. For Dreamforge. <laughs> Gee. We have to split up the duties here. There's too much to do. <laughs> so what what's oh, it on what's it on Instagram? <laughs> And is there anything else that is Dreamforge that your wife is under that you can remember? That awesome. um, no, it, she she basically she basically does some of the Facebook. I do some Facebook. I do Twitter solely, and she does Instagram because I don't know how Instagram works. Okay. <laughs> and and what is the handle on Dream uh, on Instagram? I'm really trying to find it for you. <laughs> oh Lord. Um. that you might have? Well, we have Instagram, we have Twitter, and we have Facebook. But I'm going to cop out and say, if you go to spaceandtime.net, you will find all those links up in the top. Brilliant. <laughs> I bet that's true for us, too. If you go to spaceandtimemagazine.com, <laughs> you will find all those those handles in the... I'm uh, actually looking you up now on, uh, on Instagram. <laughs> okay. I see a Pinterest thing on ours as well, and and it looks like a YouTube. Um, oh yeah, it's like Instagram, Instagram.com, Dreamforge Magazine. Yeah, Instagram.com slash Dreamforge Magazine. Very good. That was brilliant, Angela. I <laughs> see. I know how to bat that ball back. <laughs> all right, all right. And uh, I I just want to um, ask: Is there any virtual events that either of you guys are going to? I'll let you take this one because I have a I have a reveal. Uh, okay. Well, I just wanted to make people aware. One of the things that we're doing is we've just started. We're it, first one will be toward the end of June on June 27th. What we call the Dreamcasters Discussion Group, and this is a way of helping fund us buy more stories for Dreamforge. Um, it's funded through Patreon. So you would go to Patreon and uh, look up Dreamforge on Patreon and become, if you become a patron at $3 a month or more, you can become a member of the Dreamcasters discussion group where we will get together and we will spend an hour a month both having guests. And our first guest is going to be Paul Dellinger, who is a short story author from the uh, 60s. Um, he uh, has, has quite a number of stories and he, want, he has things he can share with new writers. And... Um, you know, we will have moderated discussion and uh, talk about things to do with writing. And so it's it's largely a writer's group, but but just readers who, who might be interested in things would be as well. And it benefits us buying stories uh, from Dreamforge, and you can you can find out about that on our website. Okay. And back to Angela. Angela? Awesome. We've got a, I've got a couple things coming up, as in, like, the poetry panel for Science Fiction Fantasy Con this weekend – and that is on my blog, which is AngelaWeissmith.com. 
and um, over at Nikon. But the thing I'm so excited about is um, we, before COVID, pre-COVID, we were planning on starting a space in Time magazine because with, you know, 1966, there's a lot of history. And Gordon has sent me just tons of boxes of amazing original things. Um, like, we, you know, Kiss, Gene Kiss, illustrated for Space and Time way, way back in, you know, the late 60s. So just some of that interesting history we wanted to bring out. But, of course, COVID happened, and, you know, we decided not to do that for the foreseeable future. And so recently, um, Second Life is a virtual platform, and I went in there for Balticon. Balticon had part of their convention, Second Life. So there was a big platform in there where you can come in, and if you're not familiar with it, it's basically like a game, except there's it's just living. You're just building things. Like, it's kind of like The Sims. I've never played The Sims, but I imagine it's like that. But the thing that we're doing is we are building that museum right now in the virtual world, um, which has a lot of, like, universities are using it now, and... Um, you know, activists are using it, like the Chelsea Hotel. When they started renovating it, um, the people, a lot of people got angry, and so they built a Chelsea Hotel in this virtual platform so that you can actually visit it, see it, and experience the damage that's being done. Um, so it gives you an emotional response. So that's our big, super exciting thing, and we're hoping to have it done um, by next month. And then the point of it is, we're doing a miniature, like a small monthly con convention, like a mini con every month where we can have events from there since we can't have them in person right now. And we can share the history of space and time since we can't really do that in person right now and uh, award our Iron Writers Contest winners every month. And then next year, that will be, I mean, hopefully there will actually be a physical component again by next year. But that's also where we, where we are going to host the Lindsners, which is our new award system that it honors Gordon Lindsner, our founder. Thank you for chatting with Sherry.